Last week, in Genesis 34 and the beginning of Genesis 35, we learned an amazing truth about, about God, and that is that God always answers us in our day of distress. That when we face something that's giving us grief or trying us or making us sorrowful, causing us distress, when we call upon him in the name of Jesus, our Savior, he always, always answers us. And last week, we saw from Jacob's life that one way God answers us in those times of distress is by removing what's causing the distress, taking the problem away. Remember the situation we saw last week? Jacob's sons had done something horrible, and all the surrounding nations were getting angrier and angrier and were threatening to destroy Jacob and his little family there, which would have been heartbreaking for Jacob and would have stopped God's promise of salvation. And Jacob was in distress, and God answered him in his day of distress and put fear upon all the surrounding nations so that they would not attack Jacob and his little family. So that's one way God answers us in times of distress, as he takes the cause of distress away. But there's another way God answers us in times of distress, which we're going to see today in Genesis chapter 35, verses 8 through 29. Sometimes, instead of removing the cause of distress, God meets us in the distress. God allows the distress to remain, but he meets us so powerfully, fills us so completely, satisfies us in himself so fully that we're content and we're peaceful and we're even full of joy in those times of distress. Now, for some of you, this is going to be a very timely message because you're going through times of distress You've cried out to God, and he has not yet removed the cause of the distress. Maybe he won't. Maybe he'll allow it to continue. And that can be hard. It can be difficult. You've called upon him. He hasn't removed the distress. The distress is still there. So like maybe your child is still rebelling. It's heartbreaking for you. Maybe your health is still a problem. It's difficult. Maybe you're struggling to find work, as we prayed about earlier. Maybe your marriage is still painful, like loveless. It's heartbreaking. Maybe there's family members or friends who are mistreating you. Maybe your work situation, people are being unjust toward you. So you've prayed, but God hasn't removed the cause of the distress. But what Moses, the author of Genesis wants to teach you this morning is that sometimes with great love, perfect wisdom, sometimes God allows the distress to remain because he's going to meet you so powerfully in the distress. He's going to satisfy you so fully in his love as you go through the distress that you will be strong, you'll be content, you'll be even overflowing with joy, and you'll say the distress was worth it all. To be that close to the Lord, to have that much of my Lord's nearness in my life, he has been worth it all. That's what Moses wants to teach us this morning. Are you ready? Let's learn. 
Turn to Genesis 35, verses 8 through 29. And I want to start with this first question. Why does Moses mention the death of Deborah? Who's Deborah? Why does Moses mention her death? Look at verse 8. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died. And she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he, Jacob, called its name Alan Bakuth. Okay, now Rebekah is Jacob's mother, and Rebekah seems to have passed away while Jacob was up working for Laban for those 20 years. So she's already passed away. Deborah was Rebekah's nurse, which meant she probably was involved in raising Jacob. So now Jacob, after 20 years of being away, has come back home, has reconnected with Deborah, it seems like, hasn't seen her for 20 years. They reunite, but then she dies. And we can see that this caused grief and sorrow and distress for Jacob because of what he calls the oak tree under which Deborah was buried. He calls it Alan Bakuth, which means oak of weeping. For Jacob to call it oak of weeping shows that this was a time of grief and a time of sorrow, a time of weeping for him. But now remember what Jacob said in last week's passage, verse 3 of this chapter, about God. Genesis 35, verse 3. Remember what Jacob said about God. He says, let, Then let us arise, go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I've gone. So here's Jacob now, Deborah's death. Jacob is facing another day of distress. So all of us readers should be wondering, how is God going to answer Jacob in this day of distress? What's God going to do? Let's ask that. How will God answer Jacob in this day of distress? And the answer is verses 9 through 15. Here's how God answers him. First, God appears to him. Verse 9. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and, and blessed him. So Jacob is in distress. God answers him, not by removing the distress, Deborah died, but God answers him by appearing to him. Hey, now that, that's good news for Jacob, but how, how would that work for us? And we sometimes can think, you know, I, I would love to see a burning bush just once, like what Moses had, right? Or I'd, I'd, I'd love to have like a pillar of cloud telling me everywhere I should go, just like Israel did, right? Decisions would be so easy. Anybody ever find yourself thinking that way? God appeared to Jacob. What does that mean for us today? And what I want to tell you is that as wonderful as a burning bush would have been, or a pillar of cloud to lead you wherever you go would have been, we have something far better than burning bushes and clouds. What do we have? We have the Word of God. We have the Word of God, the very words of God. And when we open up the Scriptures and read the scriptures and pray over the scriptures, the Holy Spirit will work so powerfully in our hearts that God will appear to us in and through the truths of his word. He will reveal himself to us in and through the truths of his word. So say you're reading about God's love. He doesn't just want you knowing that God loves you. That's crucial. That's your foundation for everything. But he will also give you times when he actually pours his love into your heart so that you know and feel and experience his love. He'll appear
appear to you in the truth of his love, filling you with his love. Or when you're reading about his glory in Christ, you're going to learn about how glorious he is. You're going to understand more about how glorious he is. That's crucial. But he will also give you times where he shines his very glory into your heart. The Holy Spirit will work so powerfully through the scriptures and you will see and feel the glory of Jesus Christ, his very glory. You are glorious. I, I know you're glorious, but now... Now I'm, I'm experiencing your glory. Or when you read about God's faithfulness, he will give you times where you so see the truth of his faithfulness and so feel the truth of his faithfulness that you know, God, you are not just real. You are absolutely faithful. You will keep every one of your promises to me. I know that I know that I know that you're going to be completely faithful to me. Your faith is strong. You're experiencing his work. That's how God appears to us, and that is more clear and more powerful and more heart-satisfying than a burning bush or a pillar of cloud was, as wonderful as those experiences were. So here's my encouragement to you. Those of you who are going through times of distress right now, or those of you who aren't but who will be at some point in the future, I want to encourage you that as you call upon the Lord, know that he will answer you, he will either take the trial away, pray for that, he wants us to pray for that, or if he doesn't, or until he does, open up the scriptures. Say, God, show me your glory. Meet me now. Pour out your spirit upon me through the word. So I see who you are in the scriptures, and I feel and experience and sense and taste and see how good you are. Come and meet me, and he will in his perfect time, in his perfect way, appear in and through the truths of God's word. That's the first thing that God does for Jacob. He appears to him. Second, verse 10, I think the point is that God urges Jacob to submit to his will. Look at verse 10. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Now that's puzzling. Because a few weeks ago, Pastor Ben preached from Genesis 32 about when God changed Jacob's name from Jacob to Israel. So why is God repeating it again here? It's not because the name change didn't work back then. It worked. But it's because God is reminding him of what happened back then because Jacob needs to hear it again. Remember what happened back in Genesis 32. God came to Jacob in the form of a man and wrestled with Jacob until, by, actually by dislocating his hip, Jacob finally submitted to God, submitted his rebellious will to God. And then Jacob was holding on to God saying, I will not let you go until you bless me. And so the name Israel probably has two meanings. And it can, from the Hebrew, mean both things. It can mean God strives because God was striving, was, was wrestling with Jacob until Jacob submitted his will. God strives. It also can mean that Jacob strives with God because Jacob wouldn't let him go until God blessed him. And I think that God's point here is the, the former, that God was wrestling with Jacob until Jacob submitted God wants to remind Jacob that's what happened back in chapter 32. And so God is saying to Jacob in this time of distress, Jacob, you need to submit your will to mine. Now, why is that so important when we have times of distress that we submit our will to God's? It's because we don't want to at those times, right? 
That's, this, is, this is distress. I don't like distress. Distress is never my will. And it is sometimes God's will for us. And we can't receive the comfort and the peace that God wants to give us unless we submit our wills to God. And I think that's what God is reminding Jacob of here. We can still be praying that God takes our distress away. Keep doing that. Keep persevering in prayer. Nothing wrong with that at all. God loves those prayers. But there are times when in his perfect love for you and care for you, he chooses not to take the cause of the distress away. And as we then submit our wills to God and say, not my will but yours be done, that opens the door then for comfort to come and for peace to come. You've experienced that, haven't you? Let's experience it more. When we go through times of distress, we need to submit our wills to God. Then third, God reminds Jacob of what he has promised to Jacob. That's verses 11 through 13. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. That's that famous word, El Shaddai, right there. I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. So God starts off saying, I am God Almighty. And the point is, because God is almighty, God will fulfill all of the promises he's made to Jacob. If God is almighty, then can anything stop God from fulfilling his promises? No, because God is almighty. And if God is almighty, that means God has all the might, and so nothing can stop him from fulfilling the promises. And then look at what promises God has made to Jacob. He reminds him, verse 11, he says, A nation will come from you. That's a promise about the nation of Israel who's going to be born from Jacob's 12 sons. So Jacob, I'm going to make you the father of a nation, the nation of Israel. Second promise, also in verse 11. Notice God says, a nation and a company of nations will come from you. What is that talking about? I think that's talking about the New Testament church. Here's why. Biologically, Jacob was the father of one nation the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. Biologically, Jacob was not the father of a a multitude of nations. But remember, who is is Jacob's great, 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 great grandson? Jesus. Okay, I already gave you the answer. (laughs) Jesus is Jacob's great, 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 great grandson. And when anyone puts his or her trust in Jesus, you're spiritually joined to Jesus. You become other passages say, a child of Abraham, a part of the spiritual Israel. And so everyone who trusts Jesus becomes part of spiritual Israel, which means people from every nation, tongue, and tribe will become part of spiritual Israel, which means that Jacob then is the father of a company of nations, not biologically, but spiritually. So here's Jacob, you're going to be the company, you're going to be the father of a nation, the biological nation of Israel, and you're going to be the father of a company of nations, men and women from every nation, tongue, and tribe who will trust your great, 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 great grandson, Jesus, the Messiah who died on the cross to pay for sin. 
Next promise, verse 11. And kings shall come from your own body. That's probably a reference to Israel's kings, like David, Solomon, Hezekiah. Then verse 12, the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. So God has Jacob look ahead to the day when they will be living the nation in the promised land, the land of milk and honey, as it's described later in the Old Testament. So Jacob, look, look ahead. A nation, nation of Israel, a company of nations through the Messiah, all the salvation and the land of milk and honey that Israel's going to have. Think of how these promises would have comforted Jacob. He's just been weeping, grieving over the, the death of Deborah, caused him grief. He's feeling loss. But see, the problem is when we go through days of distress, we can so focus on the loss that all we think of is loss. We don't want to stop thinking about the loss. The loss is real, and grief can be appropriate when we grieve in the Lord. But when we set our minds on God's promises, we can see that our lives are not just loss, but there's great gain in front of us as well. And that great gain will comfort the loss and heal the loss and even swallow up and eclipse the loss. So I would encourage you when you go through days of distress and God hasn't removed the cause of the distress to take special time to pray over God's promises. Yes, the loss is there and it's real, but look at what God has promised. Look what is coming. Let me give you some examples. Here's some promises that I use. Romans 8, 18. Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, there's all these days of distress right there, right? I consider that the sufferings of this present time, so that includes whatever suffering you're going through, you're, you're, you're trusting Jesus Christ, you're saved, you're forgiven, you're going through sufferings, that, those sufferings are right here in this verse. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Glory is going to be revealed to you. Because you're trusting Jesus Christ, the day will come when God's glory, displayed through Christ, will be revealed to you. And you've had tastes of Jesus' glory. You know there is nothing more beautiful, more satisfying, more heart-filling than the glory of Jesus Christ. We've had tastes. This is through a mirror dimly, though. The day's coming when it's going to be face to face. And the joy of beholding Jesus' glory will make every bit of suffering completely worth it. That's what Paul promises here. He promises. Here's another promise, John 6, 35. We use this one a lot here at Grace Church. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, when we face days of distress, when we face times of sorrow, times of trial, those are difficult because they create heart hungers and thirsts. That's why they're difficult. There's sorrow, there's emptiness, there's sadness, there's longing, right? That's what trials, distress, grief does. But Jesus promises that with all the heartache and the pain of the suffering that you're going through, when you come to him, 
When you believe in him, when you seek his face, open up God's word, say, pour out your love upon me. Satisfy my heart in yourself. I'm feeling only loss now. I know I have you, but I'm just not feeling it at all right now. Come, fill me, satisfy me. He will give you times where he so pours his living presence into your heart that you, your every heart hunger is satisfied and your every heart thirst is quenched. He will do that for you. He's promised in his word. One more. Revelation 21.4. He will wipe away, speaking of God the Father, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Think about how big God is. Think about the universe. I mean, billions of light years. He created it all. And then think of little you and little me and how little your tears are, but they're not little to God. The day is coming when he will wipe, he, God, not, not just like group wipe, but individually wiping every tear from your eyes. Every tear from your eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, no more days of distress ever again, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Child of God, this is your destiny. 60, 70 years from now, we're all going to be there. 80 years. I mean, how old you are? Okay, 30 years for some of us. All right, we're going to be there. It's real. And you will bow at God's feet and you'll thank him for every day of distress because those days of distress were gifts from him, of more of him, in this life and in the life to come. And they're temporary, they're momentary. Revelation 21 is coming. So when you go through times of distress, again, take time to open up God's word and to pray over God's promises. Just like God reminded Jacob of his promises, you remind yourself of, your, of his promises and God will come and remind you of his promises and he'll meet you. Okay, so what happens then? After God reminds Jacob of his promises, look at verses 13 through 15. This is so interesting. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it. That's worship. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob is worshiping. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. Now think about this. Back in verse 8, Jacob was weeping, oak of weeping. Here in verses 13 through 15, Jacob is worshiping. What happened to change him from weeping to worshiping? God came. God appeared to him. God called him to surrender his will to God's will. God reminded him of his promises. And as God revealed himself to him, and as Jacob surrendered his will to God, and as Jacob was reminded of God's promises, his heart was changed from weeping to worshiping. I love that. This is what God will do in our hearts as we, as we seek him. So Jacob has faced a day of distress and God has answered him. We've seen that. Now, the distresses aren't over though. It's shocking in this section of scripture. There's another, even more heartbreaking distress to come. What distress comes next, verses 16 through 20? 
Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel, this is Jacob's wife who he loved, Rachel went into labor and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, do not fear for you have another son. And as her, Rachel's soul was departing for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Ani, son of my sorrow or son of my strength. But his father called him Benjamin, Benjamin, son of my right hand. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. So the author of Genesis, the pillar was still there as he wrote. But think of what this would have meant for Rachel, for Jacob. Jacob loved Rachel. Rachel was his wife. Rachel dies after giving birth to Benjamin. Now, the fact that another son was born, that would have been comforting to Jacob, obviously. But he would have rightly, rightly been heartbroken over Rachel's death. Grief can be a holy thing, right? Christians don't avoid grief. We read the Psalms. The Psalms are full of how we grieve in the Lord. We lament Psalms of lament. Jacob rightly would have grieved, been heartbroken over the death of his Wife, this would have obviously been far more heartbreaking than the death of his mother's nurse. So what is Moses' point? Why does Moses move right from his worship into the death of his wife? Here's what struck me. See if this makes any sense to you. Because we might be reading Jacob worships and then his wife dies. We might think, wait a minute. Jacob loves God. Jacob's worshiping God. Jacob is faithful to God. Why would God take his wife? Why would God take the wife from a man who loves God, who worships God, who's submitting to God? Why would God do that? Fair question, right? See, I think Moses' point is to help us understand that bad things happening don't necessarily mean we've been bad. And good things happening don't necessarily mean we've been good. Now, many Christians just have this wrong equation in their mind. That's what they think. Bad things, people have been bad. Good things, people have been good. That can happen. But does God ever give good things to bad people? Yes. I didn't sense that you were going to be quick to answer that one. Does God ever give good things to bad people? Does he ever allow blessings to come to bad people? Absolutely. You see it all through the Bible. Okay, read the Bible. More, just read some more and you'll, you'll notice that. Okay? Does God ever give bad things to good people? Does he ever allow hard things to come to? Jesus, the cross, the most horrifying thing that could happen to anyone, to the son that the father loved, his only beloved, only begotten son, and right here to Jacob. So I think Moses wants to tweak the equations that we tend to operate in too often. Now, why would God allow bad things happen to good people? Why would God do that? Many, many passages explain that. It's because through distress and heartbreak, God will give us even more of himself. That's why. If we will 
humble ourselves before him, cry out to him, seek his face. He will pour out more joy in him, more love in him, more of his glory, more of his presence than we would have experienced apart from the trials. I mean, Jan's in my first just little experience of this. This is years ago. We were trying to get pregnant, weren't able to. And one day Jan calls up. I was at the church office and she said she'd gone to see the doctor that morning. She said, please come home. Drove home and the doctor said, you have endometriosis, you need to have surgery. And that was hard. That was hard to hear. But talk to Jan. I'll tell you my story. God gave us such nearness to him through that pain and such joy in him through that pain that we wouldn't trade missing that surgery and the results of that with what we received in him for a moment. Isn't that right? Ask Jan. She had to go through the surgery. Okay. God does allow hard things to happen to people who he loves, people who he saved through Jesus because they are gifts from him of more of him. That's what God does. So God allows Rachel to die. And although Moses doesn't describe this, we can, I think, rightly assume that Jacob called upon the Lord and the Lord answered him. So at this point, we might think, okay, that's it, right? No more distresses for poor Jacob. No, there's another distress. What distress happens next? Verses 21 through 22. Israel journeyed on. Israel is Jacob here, remember? Israel journeyed on. Jacob journeyed on, pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder, While Israel, Jacob, lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Israel, Jacob, heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. Okay, Bilhah was Rachel's maidservant, and she was a concubine. Remember, she, Rachel, asked Jacob to have a child through her maidservant, Bilhah. And so there was a concubine arrangement here, which seems it it, it wasn't, it's some kind of a legal status, it wasn't marriage. It's not God's will. God's will was monogamy, one man, one woman. We've talked about that. Polygamy, when it occurs in the Old Testament, is, is not what God's will was, but it's what was happening here. And Reuben was Jacob's firstborn son, the one who was to have authority over the other sons. But here we see Reuben sinning both sexually and he sins by blatantly dishonoring and shaming, rebelling against his father, Jacob. And we can see that from what Jacob says about this event a few chapters later in Genesis 49, verses 3 and 4. This is where Jacob is speaking a final word to each of his 12 sons. And most of them receive words of blessing. But listen to what Jacob says to Reuben. This is moving. Imagine Jacob looking Reuben right in the eyes. Jacob's ready to, to die. He's, he's going home. And he looks at Reuben. Reuben, verse 3, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence. Boom. 
scripture, he said it with tears. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Can you feel Jacob's heartbreak and distress here? Now again, back to Genesis 35, we can assume that Jacob called out to God after what Reuben did and that God answered him in the day of his distress, but that's not what Moses tells us. Moses focuses elsewhere because Moses immediately tells us about how Jacob has 12 sons. Now why? Why does Moses immediately after this, immediately after this, list Jacob's 12 sons? Look at verses, we're back to chapter 35 now. Look at verses 22 to 26. Again, verse 22, while Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were 12. The sons of Leah, Reuben, there he is, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. Now why does Moses list Jacob's 12 sons? I think it's to remind us that through all of this, God is being faithful to his promises to Jacob. See, we could be tempted at this point to have some hard thoughts of God. Deborah dies, his wife dies, his son does this. Despair, distress, distress, distress. God, come on. Ease up on this man. God's, God's not being very kind to Jacob here, we could think. But Moses wants to remind us that God is faithfully keeping his promises to Jacob. Through all of the distresses, through all the difficulties, 12 sons are being given to Jacob, who will be the 12 sons of Israel. Through Jacob, you will be the father of a nation, and the Messiah will be born through those sons, and you'll be a company of nations. Salvation will come to people from every nation, tongue, and tribe. God has been faithful to Jacob. And so what this means, I think what Moses wants us to get from this is that when we are going through days of distress, we need to understand that even though there's problems, God is still being faithful to us. God never promised a life free from trials. You have to understand that. In fact, God promises trials. Jesus says, in the world you will have tribulation. Promise. But be of good cheer. That's not the end of the story. I've overcome the world. So when we go through times of distress... We need to remind ourselves that God is faithful to his promises. God, you're faithful. Yes, this heartbreaking thing's happening, but you have been faithful, you are being faithful, and you will be faithful to me. So, for example, let's say you're going through distress about your, your work, maybe, or your, maybe it's your health, or maybe it's your, your children. Remind yourself, God will be faithful to his promises. So, for example, the promise of James chapter 1, verse 12. Going through a day of distress, open up and just read this one. Blessed is the man or the woman who remains steadfast under trial. For when he or she has stood the test, he, she will receive the crown of life. When you've stood the test, and by God's grace, he will help you to stand the test. You can't do that on your own. He will enable you. But when you've stood the test, you will receive the crown of life. 
which God has promised to those who love him. God will be faithful. The crown of life is coming. Second promise, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. For this momentary, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So the distress you're going through is preparing something for you. As you seek God's face, as you remind yourself of God's promises, as you submit yourself to God's will, as you fight to trust his faithfulness, that's all preparing for you something even better in the future. More joy in God's glory in this life and in the life to come will be yours as you faithfully fight to trust him through the days of distress. One more, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. You might think, what if I'm too weak? What if I'm not able to keep trusting him? Those are good questions. Look at what God promises, 2 Corinthians 9, 8. God is able to make all grace abound, overflow more than enough to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, that includes days of distress, right? All sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work, including the good work of being steadfast through trials. God will give you the grace to be steadfast. So remind yourself, God will be faithful to his promises. He has been, he is being, and he will be faithful to his promises when you go through days of distress. There's one more distress. One more. What other distress does Jacob face? Verses 27 to 29. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, hadn't seen his father for over 20 years, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. People lived longer back in those old Bible times. And Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people old and full of days. And his sons, Esau and Jacob, buried him. This is the fourth distress in 22 verses. Fourth distress in 22 verses. Why so many distresses? Thought about this, looked at it, studied it. Here's, here's why. Here's my, see if this fits with you, see if you make sense, this makes sense to you. When we go through distresses, especially when distresses continue on for a long time, or when they pile up one after the other, after the other, after the other, right? We've experienced that to some extent. At those times, we can be tempted to think God has left us. God doesn't love us, right? I go there, you go there. I think we all tend to go there at those times. But think about what's happening in this passage. We're talking about Jacob. Who is Jacob? He is the father of the nation of Israel. Israel's named after him. The nation of Israel is the nation of Israel, Jacob, him. Jacob is loved by God. Jacob is honored by God. So if Jacob, who is so loved and honored by God, faces four distresses in 22 verses, and God is still being faithful to him, God is still loving him, God is still blessing him, then when you are going through a long series of distress, you shouldn't lose hope. You shouldn't think God has stopped loving you. You shouldn't think God has abandoned you. 
God hadn't abandoned Jacob, and he hasn't abandoned you. You're in good company, you and Jacob. In heaven, you can compare notes, talk about what it was like. And just as God met Jacob in all of his distresses, so God will meet you in all of your distresses. So those of you who are going through times of distress right now, pray that God removes the distress because that's how God answers us sometimes. But sometimes he chooses to allow the distress to remain. And at those times, we need to humble ourselves before him, submit our wills to him, seek his face, Remind ourselves of God's promises. Remind ourselves that God is faithful to his promises. Look at the example of men like Jacob, women like Ruth, who God loved and who God allowed to go through significant trials and difficulties. Keep strong. Don't lose hope. Keep trusting. Let us pray for you. We'll pray together. But God will meet you so powerfully in your time of distress that you will one day fall down at his feet and thank him for that day of distress because the nearness you've had and the glory you've experienced in knowing Christ makes it all worth it. That's Moses' word to you from this passage. Now, one last question, though. How does this passage fit into the overall book of Genesis, what we've seen from the overall theme of Genesis? Here's what we've seen so far in Genesis. One last time to go through our, our picture, okay? I'm going to miss you, picture. All right, here we go. Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the universe, a beautiful world, and Adam and Eve. But tragically, in chapter 3, Adam and Eve do what we have all done. They succumb to the temptation of the serpent, and they decide they're going to, going to choose for themselves how they're going to live. Don't need you, creator, God, massively powerful, loving, kind, infinitely wise God. Don't need you. We're going to decide for ourselves how to live. That's what the Bible calls sin. Because of their sin and our sin, the whole world was brought under God's curse, facing God's judgment forever. That's the situation in chapter 3. But also in Genesis 3, God gives a promise. I hope you know this by now. Genesis 3, 15, God promises that one of Eve's offspring will crush the serpent's head. One of Eve's offspring will destroy Satan and his work, and that's a prophecy of Jesus who would come thousands of years in the future, would die on the cross to pay for the sins, pay for the guilt of all the sins of all who trust him. And by forgiving their sins, Satan's work over them is broken. They're freed from being under God's curse. They're brought into God's blessing, and Satan's work is broken and destroyed. And that's Jesus, right? The offspring of Eve. He was born fully as a man, and he also was fully God, and he broke Satan's power. There's the promise, Genesis 3.15. Then chapters 4 through 11, we see sin spreading throughout the whole world until by the time we get to chapter 11, we can't see any hints of any godliness anywhere in the world in chapter 11. But chapter 12, God raises up Abraham and repeats the promise of salvation to Abraham. Namely, Abraham, through one of your offspring, I'm going to bring the blessing, the blessing of God to people from every ethnic group, every racial group, every language group. I'm going to bring the blessing of God. That's also a promise of Jesus. Because by dying on the cross, Jesus purchased salvation for men and women from every nation, tongue, and tribe. And Jesus was the offspring of Abraham. Jesus is the serpent crusher. 
That's Genesis 12. And then through the life of Abraham and the life of Isaac and the life of Jacob, we see God repeating that promise and we see God securing that promise, overcoming all the obstacles to that promise. And that's what we've seen in the life of Jacob. And that's what we see in today's passage. Because notice in today's passage, we see God repeating the promise of salvation. Jacob, you're going to be a nation through whom the Messiah is going to be born. And through that Messiah being born, people trusting him, you're going to become spiritually a company of nations. People from every nation, tongue, and tribe brought from God's curse to being into God's blessing, being forgiven, born again, redeemed, adopted as God's sons and daughters, saved with eternal life forever. No hell, no judgment, no condemnation. There's the promise of salvation repeated in this passage. And God also secures the promise of salvation in this passage. The fact that nothing got in the way of God giving Jacob the 12 sons through whom would be born the people of Israel, through whom would be born the Messiah. God repeats the promise of salvation here, and God secures the promise of salvation here. And so, as we wrap up this series now in the live, lives of Isaac and the lives of Jacob, it's fitting that we celebrate communion together. Because Jacob's great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson is Jesus Christ the Messiah, the Savior, the serpent crusher who died on the cross to pay for the sins of all who would trust him. And it's fitting that we close this series by worshiping Jacob's great-great-great-great-grandson, Jesus, our Savior, our King, our Lord. So I'd like the worship team, why don't you come on up and we'll get set up here for communion. Let me mention that communion is not a time for sinless people. Okay? None of us here are sinless. Okay? I hope we know that. Communion is a time for sinful people who are trusting Jesus Christ, who know that they can't earn righteousness from God by their own efforts. They have to receive Jesus' perfect gift of righteousness and forgiveness by trusting him by faith alone. So it's a time for sinful people to celebrate what they have in Jesus Christ. So if you know that you're a sinful person and you're trusting Jesus, then communion is for you. Now, what if you're here this morning and you're not yet trusting Jesus? We are so glad you came. Keep coming. But if you're not trusting Jesus yet, then it wouldn't be appropriate for you to come up and worship Jesus because that's not in your heart. Just stay where you are seated. Think about the songs. Think about the truths that we're singing. And, oh, that this morning would be the morning that you would put your trust in Jesus. You could do that right now and then celebrate communion with us. But communion is a time for those who are trusting Jesus Christ. So the team's going to lead us in two songs to help focus us on the cross and what Jesus has done. During those two songs, come onto the table here. Come down the center aisle. Both sides go into the center aisle and go on both sides of the table and go back out that side of the aisle. That'll keep the traffic flow smooth. And then hold on to the bread and the cup because after the second song, I'll come up and I'll lead us in partaking together. Let's pray. Lord, would you capture each of our hearts afresh with the cross right now. Help us to see your love for us in sending Christ. 
Help us to see, Lord Jesus, your love for us in, in suffering as you did and taking the judgment that we deserve upon yourself and paying for our sins through your death. Help us to see the forgiveness that we have, the righteousness that we have, the eternal life that we have, all the promises of God that we have because of what you've done. Lord, bring fresh confession of sin where that's needed. Bring fresh assurance of salvation where that's needed. Come and meet your people, Lord, as we celebrate communion, partake of communion together. In Jesus' name, amen.